Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's my first day as Where We Live's new host. It's an incredible show with an incredible team, and I'm looking forward to talking with you, our listeners. You'll hear, you'll hear John Dankowski on Where We Live from time to time as a guest. He's now executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, and he'll bring us stories from our unique region. We can't wait to hear them. And with the new host comes some small changes at first. That's right, time to say farewell to the old theme song. We'll be trying out new things over the next few months. But the most important part of where we live is the conversation. The number, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Today we're bringing you a show with three distinct topics. First, a check-in with the WNPR newsroom about a big problem in Connecticut, New England, and across the country. It's the heroin epidemic. Jeff Cohen is a WNPR reporter, and he's here in studio. Thanks so much for coming in. Good morning, Lucy, and I am honored to be here on your first day. Well, thank you. Sure. I know it's uh, early, but we wanted to get right into a really uh, difficult issue that our communities are facing. Um, I've been a reporter here for a long time, so with Jeff, and we've been covering the opioid crisis for several years. But um, there's a new series rolling out on our air this week. It's taking a, a new approach to our reporting. And I wanted you to kind of describe, you know, the decision behind doing this series. Sure. I think uh, th- there's so much to be done about the question of heroin and and prescription painkillers and, and their use. Uh, and it, for a time, it can seem sort of scattershot. Everyone's got something going on. Lots of different reporters had ideas. And so we coordinated ourselves and w- with the mission of if we're going to tell stories about a topic that is being widely covered, how can we tell those stories differently? What can we tell that, won't, that will fill a gap, essentially, that exists in, in other news coverage? And how can we tell it differently? And one strength that we have is hearing directly from people in their own voices. And that's really powerful. You're not going to get that. sound like we're, we're fundraising here, but you're not going to get that <laughs> anywhere else. Uh, so that's what, that, that was sort of our guiding uh, vision for this first uh, heroin series. And it's important to note, this is not a new subject matter for WNPR. We've been covering this crisis for years, as you have specifically. Uh, but this is just, uh, you know, putting, a, putting our flag in the ground and saying we're going to take it with a new, renewed focus. So this week, WMPR listeners are going to hear three different stories about the drug crisis, starting with yours tonight, mm-hmm. Jeff. Tell us about your story. What did you look at? Sure. Well, so the question of data was the, the thing I got into first, which was what kind of data do we collect on on heroin and accidental drug overdoses in the state, broadly speaking? Uh, and so to, to tell that story, I met with the office of the chief medical examiner for the state, Dr. James Gill. Uh, and I so it began as a data story, but then it, it ends up, and you'll hear it tonight. It ends up being more of a personal story uh, in a conversation with him. I visited with him. Uh, we began in this room. It's, it's called the family room, and you it, we're sitting, and he was sitting next to a television, and the television had this white shroud over it. And I asked him. I said, "Is that what is that?" And and he said, "This is the family room where family members come." to learn about the the death of their loved one. And this television is essentially a closed circuit feed of if you want to see their your loved one's remains. I mean, it's very powerful 
stuff if you think about it. And so he was walking me through. Uh, the, the medical examiner's office, uh, and he walked me right past uh, the autopsy room, and this is uh, part of that interview. So we kind of have a, a typical board uh, listing all the decedents for the day, overdose, 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 overdose. Uh, that's just for today. One is probably a suicidal overdose, but the four of them are, um, are intoxication, suspected intoxication overdose, overdose deaths. Fairly normal? Unfortunately, yes. So we hear so often that uh, the overdose deaths in Connecticut around the country um, have tripled um, in the last uh, decade. Mm. I mean, you're seeing from the ground level that Mm. even at the morgue, so many of these people have died from suspected overdoses. That's right. And, I mean, there were nine people in his custody that day. Five of them uh, died because of drug overdoses. Four of them Accidental, and if you look at the numbers, Connecticut's deaths from uh, accidental intoxications have have doubled over the past three or four years. Heroin is a huge driver of that. Fentanyl, a synthetic, uh, is also surging, but not as greatly in terms of volume as heroin. Um, but there's also a, a more practical problem. I mean, if he, his number of autopsies that he's doing in a year has, I think it's gone up by fifty percent. He said it over two or three years. So from 1,200 autopsies roughly, and these are rough numbers, to around 2,000 or close to 2,000, that's a huge change, and it's uh, causing him some very practical concerns. He's running out of space to temporarily store bodies. We've had to buy some extra racks and things to, so we can, we can store more, but we really probably need more cooler space. We're kind of outgrowing uh, the storage space here. So he's have extra racks to put yeah. people's... Remains. Right. And, and, and part of the problem has to do with, uh, you know, there, there's only so many people who can do autopsies. There's only, you know, and, and so, I mean, it, these are very practical concerns when it comes to um, the, the, the situation we're facing when it comes to prescription drug and heroin overdose, accidental overdose deaths. So we're coming off a weekend where we, the General Assembly just approved this stark mm-hmm. budget. Um, the state's been in some fiscal straits for some time. Looking at that in context, you know, how is the, our fiscal crisis in, the, in Connecticut impacting services, say, at the chief medical examiner's office? Sure. So I should say that I haven't had a chance to follow up with Dr. Gill since the budget passed, uh, and it hasn't yet been signed, I, I don't think. So if, I am, if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, but I, So I don't know what was passed. But one thing that he feared and that he was telling people was that it's going to – it's going to um, – that cuts to his office or the current budget – situation is making it harder for him to, A, collect data uh, and to report data t- in, t- in a more timely fashion. But also, uh, he, he'll st- have, he would have to stop doing toxicology on certain types of deaths, not suspected overdose deaths, but rather, um, say, a gunshot wound or a car accident. He won't be able to do those toxicology reports to find out what drugs were in a person's system. Now, the police, they would take samples, and the police could later have a private lab do the, that testing if they needed it to be done. But that's another test, and it's sort of, it's just an expense he can't incur. Mm-hmm. And in the past, before Dr. Kill, Dr. Mm-hmm. Gill became the chief medical examiner, Connecticut wasn't getting this really specific data. Tell us why that's important. Where does that data go? Sure. So the, the, so the, back to the, the idea for the story, it has to do with this data and the genesis of the data. And what happens is um, <clears throat> medical examiners and coroners around the country report a, ca- a specific cause of death on a death certificate. And that death certificate is the genesis of information uh, for the Federal Centers for Disease 
Control and Prevention, I got that right, uh, to gather their data on nationwide accidental drug overdoses. But not every state gets very specific. Uh, in fact, Connecticut a few years ago was at about, I think it was about 60 some odd percent of the death certificates actually listed the exact drugs that, that contributed or, or, or probably contributed to the death of the decedent. Uh, now, three years later, uh, they're at 99%, uh, one of the highest in the country of listing those specific rates. Other states, Pennsylvania is down like 50%, which is a challenge for people who are trying to guide public health, right? Mm-hmm. It's a challenge for people at the federal level who want to guide their public health policy if they don't know exactly what drugs are involved. So um, illicit opioids versus prescription opioids are two very different things and, and merit two very different responses. So that's that's the public health reason. But data is also really important, Dr. Gill says, um, because families really uh, want data. Pa- families often want to know what led to the death uh, of their loved ones. And this is one conversation I had with him about that. I just had a phone call from from a woman. Uh, the person there, I believe it was her, her daughter, died uh, a year ago. And, and it took her this long to make the phone call. <clears throat> and she wanted to know explain, have me explain the toxicology testing and so forth. And then she called me back a half an hour later and said, I have another question. Can you tell me, did she suffer? Was she in pain? And I explained to her that with an opioid death, the person just gradually goes to sleep and that it's, it's very painless. And she started crying, you know, and uh, it gave her some comfort. He must get a lot of questions and also um, some pushback from families who don't want to see the cause of death when it relates to addiction on the death certificate. They're right. So not every family wants to know. Uh, or if the family knows, families don't always want the whole world to know. Uh, uh, but Dr. Gill, and you'll hear this later tonight on All Things Considered, Dr. Gill really firmly believes that this is a public health issue and that the fullest disclosure of information really is, is uh, most important. So we're going to hear your story tonight at 5.44 p.m. Mm-hmm. on WNPR. What are some of the other stories our reporters have been working on that they'll also be hearing this week? Sure. Later this week, we'll hear from WNPR's Harriet Jones, who has a story about how difficult it can be for families to pay for addiction treatment for their loved ones. Uh, and tomorrow night, uh, WNPR's Patrick Scahill, my deskmate, uh, will tell us a story about Suboxone. That's an alternative medication-assisted treatment for people addicted to heroin or pres- prescription painkillers. And uh, Patrick's story takes a closer look at Suboxone and speaks with he speaks with a person who's happy to have access to it because uh, the alternative isn't good. You get clean, you get out, you ruin your life. You get a good job, you get a girlfriend, whatever. Everything feels good, then you feel like you made enough progress to get high again, and then that's where you slip up. And that's happened at least five times for me. These are all really um, hard-hitting sound bites, and I know the question we get oftentimes as reporters is how do we get people to open up and talk about Mm. something uh, this personal? Uh, Wow. I think listening is important. Um, one of our jobs, we are, when you hear us on the radio, it's because we're talking mm-hmm. often. But one of our most important jobs is to just shut up and listen. Right. Uh, and I think when we do that well, um, people, uh, all kinds of people, uh, including if I just do that at home, it helps me there too. <laughs> so uh, that uh, listening helps. That's WNPR's Jeff Cohen. Thanks again for coming in.
My pleasure. And you can always hear more about this series uh, that WNPR is doing on the opioid crisis at WNPR.org. Coming up, Connecticut's budget problems have a real human impact. We'll talk with two state workers who recently received layoff notices. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Late last week, the General Assembly approved a $19.76 billion budget deal brokered between Governor Daniel Malloy and Democratic leaders. The plan fills a $1 billion deficit with deep cuts in spending, which includes eliminating positions. Governor Malloy says the new state budget deal includes plans for additional job cuts. Here's what he told Fox 61's Jen Bernstein last week. We're closing in on a 1,000 job eliminations thus far. Uh, There'll be additional um, uh, job eliminations uh, required under this budget, uh, the exact number of which is not known because people are retiring uh, and uh, are leaving service uh, prior to retirement. Layoff notices to state employees started going out well before the General Assembly voted. Now that the budget deal has been approved, we wanted to start talking to people affected by service cuts and job losses. Today, we're focusing on some of the workers who've been laid off. In studio with me are two former employees for the state of Connecticut. Angela Valero worked as a correctional officer, while Marianne Duval was a speech pathologist for the state. Angela and Marianne, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start off with you, Marianne. I understand um, when we look at your careers with the state of Connecticut, um, the time that you spent uh, with the state of Connecticut, uh, Marianne, has been many years. Uh, I know Angela was more of a newer uh, employee for the state of Connecticut. So tell me about what you did and where you worked. Okay. As a speech pathologist, and I've worked in the north region of the Department of Developmental Services for since 1992. And prior to that, I worked at Mansfield Training School, and I actually I started as a lifeguard. But as time went on, I became a speech pathologist, and I worked with um, quite a number of people working on either developing their speech and language skills, learning to use augmentative communication devices, sign language, picture use to communicate, and um, also people who weren't going to be a language level, learning how to express themselves using their gestures or the eye gaze, using even looking at pictures around the room to express what they wanted. And I covered about, I think, I was trying to count on my way in, about 15 homes. And then I gave support to other speech-language pathologists who worked, came in usually on second shift when people were home and helped define where the caseloads would be so we could best get to people and help them to express what they felt like, what they liked, what they didn't like, um, if they were sad, happy, if something hurt, Mm -hmm. who they wanted to talk to, what they'd like to do. And so you worked for the state for some time, and we know that the budget problems have been growing and growing. Did you feel like it was only a matter of time or um, that you lasted this long? I hoped not because I felt like it was a very, very important service. Um, And the others around me who were let go directly in DDS also provided um, occupational therapy and physical therapy services. We worked all together to to make people's lives better. And there really weren't very many of us, so we were stretched and we were working hard. But we were making an impact to make people's lives more comfortable, better, and and more productive. And when did were you technically? Um, when did you technically receive the layoff notice? A week, two weeks ago, tomorrow. Um, 
So there any hope that you could get your job back? I know when people are uh, vested within a certain amount of time because of um, your representation in the union, I mean, could you um, see your job again, or is this something where your career is over here with the state of Connecticut? I'm not sure just what's going to happen. Um, I believe I'll have some bumping rates, and I don't know just what they'll be or what to vis- what position it would be. So I think my career as I've had it is is over. And I want to turn to Angela, Angela Valero, who worked within the Department of Correction here in Connecticut. Tell me about a little bit about your job and when you started. Well, I um, <clears throat> I actually started my position back in November. I got hired as a correctional officer, and I went through the academy. And I graduated back in February, and I started right away. So I was only on the job for two months, um, but it was a great job, great experience for the two months that I was there. Um, And, uh, you know, I love my facility. I got to get back into it. Were you were you concerned about um, starting a career with the state when we when we hear so often about the, the budget crisis and what that would mean? You know, I I honestly wasn't even thinking about it. You know, they they were pushing so many classes through, um, and you know you don't really you don't really expect to get laid off. There's been so many scares over the years. Um, you know, my mom has also been a correctional officer for 16 years, and it, it it's been seen, but it hasn't really, you know, it ha- never really took effect. So um, me going in, I didn't think that I was going to end up going through what I'm going through now. Mm-hmm. So. so tell us about your day-to-day work within the prison system. We hear so often that, you know, crime is down, uh, the rate of inmates has declined. And so what is it like working within uh, a state prison? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> um, it's a definitely a, a dangerous job. Um, it's, you know, going into the facility, my facility personally, which is Corrigan, Rogowski, and Montville. Um, it's a level four, so it's a high security facility. Um, we probably have roughly 1,300, 1,400 inmates throughout both facilities because it's we have two separate buildings. Um, it's uh, It can be challenging sometimes, you know. Um, you just got to make sure that, you know, we as correctional officers are there for safety and security of the facility and of the community. You know, we got to make sure everything is um, running at its best, you know. We got to make sure the inmates are safe as well as us correctional officers, so... This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking with two uh, former state employees for the state of Connecticut who've been laid off recently due to uh, the budget problems at the Capitol. Um, Angela, I wanted to go back to you. Do you, when you look now that now that you've received this layoff notice and you're without work, do you question the judgment of the state for you know continuing to train uh, people to become correction officers when we see when they say the system is um, you know getting smaller? I mean, like why train and have people um, trained to do this job and be hired when in a year or two they get laid off. Absolutely. I question it. Um, you know, there's, I kind of question it only because I'm going through it. You know, uh, I was just hired not that long ago and, you know, I left my great job for my dream job, you know, 
for them to hire me and then let me go only within a couple months. So, I mean, it is questionable, you know, why? Why do it to people when they have they have already dealt, you know, they have their careers already in line, you know what I mean? Um, it's just, I don't know. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. Marianne, I mean, what when you got that layoff notice, I mean, how did you feel about um, the, the position that you're now in? I really wasn't able to picture it right at that moment. I think because I've done this for so long and it's been my daily, you know, my daily activity for so long that um, I really couldn't picture just what this would be like and how much I would miss people. Some of the people I've worked with for almost 30 years, um, how much I would still be worrying about people. I'm wondering, we also provided swallowing and dysphagia services so that if somebody had difficulty with any part of the the eating and swallowing process, we would do assessments, see how could they eat safely, maybe go into a hospital for barium swallow, then set them to the right food consistency, the right positioning for eating, knowing that then they would be with well-trained staff eating safely and not choking. And even sometimes if they weren't choking, it could be discomfort um, leading to pneumonia. So there's that health component, and that worries me. The emotional break worries me, too, because some of these people, I've, like I said, I've been around for 20, 30 years, and we have a good, strong bond, and I miss them. I'm hearing from people they miss me, too. Mm-hmm. So... When you're let go um, in this way, I mean, is there any support program or service that you get through the state um, now that you're out of work? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, as far as the support, you know, me personally, the warden from my facility has reached out, uh, you know, the commissioner. They're great people and they have hearts. Um, and for me... I'm lucky to have that. So, um, you know, other than that, I, d- I haven't heard of any anything. And Marianne? I haven't heard of any specific program. Mm-hmm. You know, we have uh, Governor Malloy come in occasionally. Also, we hear from uh, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. And we hear often that uh, Connecticut uh, doesn't just have a revenue problem. It has a spending problem. And so um, now that you're in this place now, um, what do you think – Connecticut needs to do to right-size um, our budget issues and to make sure that services are being provided to our taxpayers who are paying for these services? Well, I think there are a few different things. I know that we had a CBAC agreement that didn't get fully implemented that was looking for savings and that our, our agency was working actively on that and we had found some significant savings. I do wonder about the... Um, the tax structure that we have in Connecticut. And I can say, I can tell you and I can tell the citizens of Connecticut that we were working very hard in our department to do it, to do the work that we did as efficiently as possible. And a number of ways of setting people up geographically so that we weren't spending as much time driving as possible. Um, We were working hard and we were working smart. And that was the best that we could do. But in terms of the services we delivered, I do believe they're very, very important services. They're needed services. And I think that perhaps other places to look might have been better places to look. Mm -hmm. Such as? Well, I do look at the tax structure that we have, that it's not really a forget about progressive, it's regressive. If the richest are 
are paying a lower percentage on taxes. The, um, I do wonder sometimes about why we have places that aren't paying people enough to stay off of public support, and then we're paying them either to be in the state or, or um, not asking them as a state to pay into that. Yeah. We just got a tweet from a listener who wants to know from both of you, do you feel like your unions did all they could? Mine was doing all it could. Well, um, me being so new, I don't really know too much about my union guys, but I'm praying to God that they are fighting hard because I know I'm not giving up. Marianne, you mentioned the tax structure. Um, It's nothing new to uh, all of us who live and work here and pay taxes. Uh, But we hear the governor say that, you know, Connecticut relies too heavily on the income tax. And part of the problem in this last budget that just was approved is when we when we rely on the return that the very wealthy are getting in Connecticut and when the stock market fluctuates, we've got this $800 million deficit now that they have to figure out what they're going to do about. So, um, you know, what's a more equitable way where we're not just talking about raising taxes, yes, we could still do that. And now that state aid has been cut in this latest budget deal, we're all going to see our taxes go up as our towns and cities start to raise the property tax. So um, what's a more equitable way that we could, you know, fix this issue before us? Well, I just, I do think that the percentage difference is maybe too broad. If we're looking at six point something for the average middle class family, or 10-point-something for the average middle-class family and 6-point-something for, you know, the wealthiest, that that gap seems rather wide, and I'm not an economist. My father was. Mm-hmm. He was actually an excellent economist, and he just said that cutting into the middle class was, and he was economic forecaster, cutting into the middle class is the very worst thing you can do for the communities and for the state. And I've, I saw it firsthand when a lot of things closed out in eastern Connecticut, what happened to the whole... Mm-hmm to the whole area. You know, the businesses suffered, individuals suffered, people lost homes, people um, stopped buying, and the spending and buying keeps the, keeps the economy going too. So I think we need to keep the economy moving. Mm-hmm. But he, my father was always one to say that cutting into the middle class and stopping that everyday flow throughout the economy of finances, spending, and um, even provision of work and needed services is the worst thing you can do. Tell me about what's going through um, your colleagues' minds as um, we hear from the governor that you know the estimate was we're going to see 2,500 positions eliminated through layoffs, through attrition, and that number could grow. I mean, what's the, what's the I guess, the morale, the feeling within um, our state government with workers that are providing these services? There's a real feeling of concern, and in our agency, really a question of where else can you cut because of the people who get our services um, really do have real needs, and their needs that need to be addressed to keep their physical and their mental, emotional health. And without those services, we won't be able to provide that. And it's not that we're, we're not rich in services. You know, people are working hard. They're working slim. And so where else can you cut? Mm -hmm. 
And Angela, you said that you hope to be working again. You want to go back to uh, the state prison where you were a corrections officer. So um, right now, I mean, what are you doing, um, you know, to keep yourself floating, to pay the bills? Um, It's not easy. Uh, The struggle is real. (laughs) You know, um, it's unemployment's not enough. And uh, I'm a homeowner. I have a family. I have vehicles, you know. Um, I just got to do what I got to do until I can get back there, and hopefully it's sooner than later, Um, you know. Yeah. And Marianne? I'm still thinking through it. Um, I think you met my daughter. So she's, we're um, talking and trying to figure what to do. And the one thing I've promised her is I'll find a way. Mm-hmm. Are you committed to staying in Connecticut? That's a funny question. Um, if I could get back into this job, which obviously I loved my job. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the work I did. If I can get back into that, I would imagine that I would stay. Um, but I have thoughts of, what else could there be out there? Mm-hmm. And might there be a better place that um, that would value the service I provide? Yeah. I've been speaking with Angela Valero, who worked as a correctional officer before she was laid off just a few weeks ago, and Marianne Duval, who worked as a speech pathologist before she was laid off about, about two weeks ago. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back after a short break. where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, in election years, candidates pay attention to the women's vote, the black vote, the Latino vote. But what about the Asian vote? Why are Asian Americans overlooked when they're the fastest growing population in the U.S., including here in Connecticut? We'll hear from Asian Americans living in the state, and we'll check in with a journalist about the stereotyping that goes on in our communities and in Hollywood. That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, we want to ask, what's your perception of Connecticut? We're going to revisit this question over the next several months. Today, a check-in with two bloggers who want to remind residents, yes, the state has budget problems. We don't want to diminish the reality. But when you consider the quality of life and all we have here, Connecticut ain't so bad. That's the name of the blog, ctaintsobad.com. If we want young people to stay or to move here, this isn't a bad website to have. So I want to welcome Jenna Kajowski, the founder and owner of Connecticut Ain't So Bad, and Jessica Bishop, the creative content editor for ctaintsobad.com. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much, Lucy. So first off, I love the name of the website because we've all thought it, right? We live here and we hear the complaints and oftentimes we overlook some of the great things that we have here in Connecticut. So tell me, I want to start with, uh, is it Jessica? I'm Jenna, yep. Okay, and so I want to start with you about where this idea come from. Well, uh, you know, when I moved here, a lot of people started complaining about that they were bored and there was nothing to do in CT. And I was going out every weekend and having a blast. And um, I just wanted to show everybody how much fun we were having. So I wrote my first post, which was about sushi. And um, (laughs) yeah, because we're kind of obsessed with sushi. So if anybody (laughs) has any recommendations, please uh, throw them our way. Um, We pride ourselves on being an offbeat website. Um, We like to have content that other people don't have. So we like to really get down and dirty with the personalities of the businesses in Connecticut. Um, and then Jessica came along about two years later, and she's been with us for about two years now. And 
you know, tell us about what you think, Jessica. <laughs> well, I mean, I honestly, I, I think it's a really neat format to feature, you know, some of the stuff that is easily overlooked in the state of Connecticut. Um, you know, we spend all of our free time sourcing just for pleasure, like what's cool to do and, you know, see. And we talk constantly to people all over the state about what they think is cool. So I think it's a good a good opportunity to to really spend the time, you know, featuring what's awesome about it. Yeah, and our mantra is uh, feel like a tourist in your own state. So it's not just for people visiting the state, but <clears throat> for people who live right here, you know, that's that's what we want to show you is the hidden gems, um, you know, that CT has to offer. And we only focus on the positive. So all you'll see is positive content. If we go somewhere and we don't like it, we just don't post about it. There's no point in fo- focusing on the negative. So mm-hmm. if you're listening now, you've been to com. We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. What are your perceptions of Connecticut? We're now in the middle of May. What are you looking forward to the next few months? Uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266, or you can tweet at where we live. So, Jenna, tell me a little bit more about where you're from, and you, you came here for the job? Um, so, basically, I went to Quinnipiac University, um, and I graduated in 03, and um, I was hired as a broadcast TV editor, so I got to stay in the state, and I was really psyched about that. Um, and then, you know, uh, I would say... We're actually celebrating our four-year anniversary this month for the site, um, so we're very excited about this, um, and we're relaunching, so we're going to do a full relaunch. We're going to have a, a venue directory of about 500 businesses across the state, so we just keep you know, building the website, and um, yeah, I, wanna, I, I have no reason to leave this state. There's too much to do, too much to see. And Jessica? Um, in terms of what, where you're like, from here, yeah. so um, I'm originally from Boston. Um, and I've been here, I guess, maybe about uh, eight years or so. Um, I came for, you know, I had friends and family in the area, and I just was kind of feeling like I needed a change. Um, you know, Boston is a great city. It's um, it, very friendly in terms of, you know, how cities are, Um but I just wanted to change. I wanted something that was a little bit um, maybe more like diverse in terms of having a little bit of urban feel, but also like a lot of uh, nature. And, you know, there's it's you're close to New York City. There's, you know, you're the Berkshires. You have the shore. You have, you know, casinos. You, there's such a variety of stuff to do in Connecticut that I felt like. It was just time to check out something different. And, you know, I honestly, I haven't looked back. You know, I love Boston. It will always be my home. Go Red Sox. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, the good thing about being in Connecticut is I'm two hours away from Boston. So, you know. So you see that as an advantage because so often we hear, oh, we're stuck between New York and Boston. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. I mean, we've got the best of both worlds, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm from Jersey. She's from Boston. <laughs> yeah. We met in the middle. Yeah, no, I mean, Jenna and I actually were talking about that sort of um, the stigma I feel like really kind of surrounds Connecticut and especially Hartford because Hartford is like dead in the middle of Boston and New York. (laughs) It's like I feel like it just has this like 
reputation for not really being relevant or, you know, sort of being like easily passed by. Like you just kind of breeze through it on your way to the next city, um, you know, but I, I strongly encourage anybody that's going between the two cities to stop and spend some time in Connecticut because there's so much good stuff here. Yeah. So I want to hear um, in a little bit about your personal uh, favorite spots around uh, <laughs> Connecticut. But I want to take this call uh, from Peter from Stamford. Hi, you're on Where We Live, Peter. Hi. Um, congratulations on your first show. Thank you, Peter. Uh, yes, uh, you're welcome. And Connecticut is a little uh, overshadowed by Boston and New York and even Providence. But if you just listen to uh, Where We Live and also, um, uh, you know, um, Oh, who does the the the, the food schmooze? Um, Faith Middleton. Faith, yeah. Faith Middleton. Faith. I think she changed the format of her show. But uh, when when she was doing other, uh, well, she does a lot of uh, things in Connecticut with the um, with the uh, wine wine festival uh, and also the um, the wine uh, and shit and uh, martini um, fundraiser. And there's a Moby Dick reading I heard about in Colin's show. And uh, there's tons of museums. There's a radio museum in Windsor and. Uh, you can just uh, if you look, there's so many things to do, and I love the summer because there's so many things in the summer to do that uh, you know you couldn't uh, find anywhere else. Peter, can I ask, are you a native Connecticutian? <laughs> uh, I I would say so. I was my, I was born in California, but I grew up in Greenwich, uh, and I live in Stanford. So I'm I've lived in Connecticut most of my life. I've lived in other states too. Um, so tell me your per- perception of Connecticut, because, again, we hear, um, you know, the two sides for people who are looking to retire and they say Connecticut is too expensive. They can't wait to leave and go to Florida. And then we hear from uh, people who move into the state, uh, like Jenna and Jessica, who, um, you know, they, they love what Connecticut has to offer. What is your take? My take is uh, Connecticut is Stanford and Greenwich are very expensive. I say to people, I grew up in Greenwich, live in Stanford, can't afford either one. Um, and, uh, without the help of my parents, I probably, uh, who knows, maybe I live, there are some affordable areas if you go, uh, up to the, but they're, you know, far flung to like, um, uh, you know, the Northwest corner or the, uh, uh, the quiet corner, I guess, I don't know if they're less expensive, the more rural you get, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive, but I think it's also, um, you know, the times of the economy's changed, times have changed, um. We don't have the big manufacturing base that we had, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, so we have to be more creative in terms of how we uh, make our money. In terms of how we spend our money, you don't need too much creativity in that. It's very fun to, to go around. But as far as actually, you know, paying rent, paying property taxes, pay the, uh, you know, paying uh, for um, saving money if you have kids, saving money for college. I mean, you know, it's just – and I think it's sort of a microcosm of, of – uh, the Northeast and uh, of uh, um, uh, of the nation. I think uh, any state that has an Ivy League school is going to be a little more expensive. I don't know if that's a, a bellwether uh, for you know the expenses in the state, uh, but um, there's definitely there's a Barnum Museum. There's the um, uh, I, I talked about Mystic Seaport, uh, and uh, uh, I think I went. I think one weekend I went to an airplane festival. Uh, and then I went to a boat show in the same weekend, you know, uh, and I think I heard about the airplane show through Colin's show. And so hey, let me go up there and, and Brainerd Field. So uh, there's so many um, good opportunities uh, to connect with people, but it is a little expensive. So, you know, um, 
you know, I mean, God, you know, Bro- Brooklyn, New York is, is probably even more expensive. Than That's that. right. So, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of, a little bit of a perspective there. You well, know? well, thank you, Peter, so much for your call to where we live. Uh, what's your perception of Connecticut? If you have a, a question for our bloggers here, ctaintsobad.com. Uh, both Jessica and Jenna are in studio, 860-275-7266. So I want to get to some of the favorite, your favorite things that you like to do here in the state. All right. So, uh, you know, Jessica and I were talking about what, you know, a very big talking point for us um, would be. And it's the community. Um, Hartford, like, is front and center right now. And this is a really good time to be a part of it. And you don't get lost in the shuffle like in some huge cities. And um, so a lot of the events that we like to go to have to do with community. And, um, you know, a couple of them that I'd like to mention would be Swan Day that Jennifer Hill puts on, Support Women Artists Now, um, Nightfall, which is fantastic. I went for the first time um, this past year, and they have these huge puppets, and you're sitting in a park and just kind of takes your breath away. Um, trash and Fashion Show is pretty neat. Um, upcycled material uh, fashion show. The restaurant weeks here are great. Um, Add to that, Jessica. You have so many that you love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely no shortage of of things going on. Um, you know, there's the farm to table dinners. There's wine trail, beer trail. You know, there's also obviously, um, you know, year round, um, you know, outdoor activities. Whether you're skiing or snowboarding, or uh, you know, looking to hike or kayak or you know, any of that. I mean, right now, obviously, being the summer season, there's certainly a big focus on getting outside, probably doing mm-hmm. some eating and drinking, maybe some waterfront. Yeah, uh, yep, some patio bars and restaurants <laughs> that we definitely love. It seems like the, it seems like the food truck mm-hmm. has really taken off, the trend here in Connecticut. I the mean, food truck revolution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that's coming up, too. Like where they, I don't know if it was down, uh, was it East Haven or North Haven? Yeah, they have it everywhere now. <laughs> There's so many going on. Them. I mean, check yeah. your Facebook events. You'll find plenty. <laughs> For sure. <Yeah. laughs> Um, and some of those food trucks that we definitely want to mention, Nora Cupcake Company, excellent. And, Middletown, yep, Middletown. Middletown, <laughs> what, what? Um, the Way Station, a more food truck. Uh, we had a, what do we have there, a beet burger. Yeah. We were at one of the food truck festivals. That was one of the coolest things we've ever eaten. Yeah. Um, speaking of food, this past weekend we went to ABC in Manchester, artisanal um, burger company, and we had a ramen burger. The burger had ramen noodles as the bun. Yes, I did say that. (laughs) And then they surprised us with the Revenge of the Nerds milkshake, which had Twizzlers and gummy bears. And yeah, we're big foodies. Uh, Definitely have to hit the gym. But uh... (laughs) wow, I was going to say, did you go on uh, a 10K? (laughs) Right. No, seriously. (laughs) Uh, We're hearing from some listeners. Uh, I want to go to Peggy from Oxford. Thanks for calling where we live. Hi. Um, I moved here 10 years ago because my daughter was at the Divinity School at Yale and we wanted to be closer. Um, she then moved to Boston, so the connect between Boston and Long Island, where we were from, is incredible. I can do these drives. I'm a retiree, and the drives are perfectly manageable. But most importantly, we shouldn't ignore our college entertainment. The Yale rep, the, the Philharmonia, the symphony... The Yale Cabaret, 
these are all extremely reasonable activities to keep you busy. The museums, my husband is handicapped, and this state has really helped him to get around and do what he needs to do. And in terms of Asian food, I'd like to recommend wasabi in Milford on Boston Post Road. Writing it down. <laughs> wasabi, W-A-S-A-B-I. They are incredible in there. He was trained in a French restaurant, and he, he makes wonderful sushi and also wonderful desserts. Well, thank you, Peggy, for that uh, note. I see, I see Jenna writing it down now, Wasabi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you for your call. Um, also, I wanted to go to Don from New London. Don, thanks for calling where we live. Hi. Great to be on. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to say I'm a transplant from uh, the Boston area to Connecticut, to New London, Connecticut. Um, I run a Segway tour company, and we have people coming from over an hour and taking the ferry or the train from New York or from in, in Boston area. They love Connecticut. Uh, it's, we, what we find is that locals from Connecticut are much harder on Connecticut than people who uh, actually um, mm-hmm. come here to visit us. Agreed. <laughs> I, I don't understand the, uh, the, the negativity from Connecticut. It's like we don't appreciate what we have, but um, it's, it's really quite fabulous. Yeah. We have great history. Uh, we have amazing landmarks. Uh, if I can just speak to New London, we've got both Fort Trumbull. We've got Ocean Beach Park. We, uh, we talk about our Revolutionary War history, which a lot of people who are from Connecticut don't seem to be aware of sometimes. Um, so uh, I, I appreciate people who are trying to say Connecticut ain't so bad. I hope you're, you know, you're, you're getting that message out to people from Connecticut. Yeah, it's funny. People from away love us. Yeah, it's funny with what you say. Um, <clears throat> my grandmother lives in Florida, and she's constantly sending me New York Times articles, you know, write-ups about Connecticut, and my family and friends love coming to visit us because they're always having so much fun here. So I agree. I think the locals are much more, you know, hard on CT than, uh, than people from out of state. And, Don, before you go, name one event that you're looking forward to attending in the next month in New London. Ooh, in the next month. Uh, or the summer. Yeah, or the summer. Well, uh, Sailfest is a great event uh, um, in New London. Uh, big fireworks, lots of vendors, lots of interesting stuff going on. Uh, and, of course, Segway tours. Come yes. and take a Segway tour. We will show you New London <laughs> like you've never seen it before, ladies. Come nice. and visit us. All right, definitely. forward to it. All right, thank you so much for your call. Um, we're getting a lot of listener phone calls, so I'm just going to go to uh, Anne from West Hartford. Thanks for calling Where We Live. Yeah, hi, great show. Thanks for doing this. I just wanted to share, um, I moved, I grew up in Connecticut, but moved uh, to New York and lived in New York for uh, the last four or five years uh, in Harlem. And then just recently moved to, back to Connecticut, West Hartford, uh, last year. And um, I hooked up with a whole bunch of, I'm a big biker, and so hooked up with some biker friends online, uh, developed a whole biking, bicycle riding community in Windsor, um, met, immediately met a whole group of great people, and we biked uh, weekly. And then I got hooked up with a a sort of a training biker group uh, in uh, Avon. And um, through that whole process, ended up uh, doing amazing biking training and just uh, finished a race uh, in New York uh, with 5,000 bikers. And it was all just through hooking up um, through this uh, biking network and community. So I just wanted to call in and say 
it's really easy to make new friends uh, in West Hartford uh, and uh, in and around Connecticut and develop a whole community. You mentioned community, and I just wanted to resonate with that. It's been a fabulous return to my home state, so I love this state. so good that you're doing this show. And then I also wanted to let you know there's this great sushi sushi restaurant in New Milford, very, very kind of casual, understated. It's called Yokohama. I love sushi, and it's some of the best sushi I have had uh, in a long time. Thank you so much. Well, well, thank you for your call, Anne. And we just have a couple more minutes. So uh, first I want to hear that you guys have won an award for your blog, ctainsobad.com. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, this year we actually got first place on uh, CT Now Reader's Poll for Best Local Blogger. And then in the magazine we also got uh, Best Local Blogger and Best Tweeter. So uh, we were pretty psyched about that. And I actually want to make mention to this Thursday – um, the CT Now Bash is actually going to be held at the Oakdale Theater, and they're allowing the public to come, and it's going to be the winners of the Hartford and New Haven polls, uh, plus the CT Music Awards, uh, which is great. They didn't have the CT Music Awards uh, this year, which I was definitely pretty bummed out about. Um, you know, the local music scene is totally rad. There are a lot of uh, friends that we've made um, in Connecticut because of, this, of the music scene, so... Yeah, Heather Dawson, who I think was uh, voted Best Folk Artist, uh, has actually works for our company nice. here at uh, <laughs> CPBN. So we, we love the music scene, too. Mm-hmm. And before we go, uh, Jessica, real quick, if someone goes to ctainsobad.com, what's the event featured that you want to tell people about? Real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the one we wanted to feature was the bash because we're going to that yeah, this Thursday. that's next on our radar. Um, I would say that... There's actually a ton of events right now on our site. Um, what would we say? I would say always check out the Beat City Beauties for their burlesque shows, the Hartford Area Roller Derby for their roller derby Great. Yeah, bouts. At Nomads usually. Yep, at Nomads. So plenty of events uh, and features, attractions at ctaintsobad.com. I want to thank Jenna Kajowski and Jessica Bishop. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having us on. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Thanks to Tucker Ives for help. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel, and this is where we live.